Good morning. And uh, Merry Christmas. I know it's, it's over, but not yet, right? We've got one more day to celebrate, uh, at least here at Liberty, where we not only believe in the 12 days of Christmas, but actually believe in the 22 days of Christmas or so. Uh, we started three weeks ago in a series called No Christmas Without, and today we will bring that series to a conclusion, uh, 22 days removed from the original. So a Christmas party just keeps on going, and we get to keep on celebrating, and it is my joy to, to get to do that with you this morning. Now, Matthew chapter 28 is where we will be. So if you brought your Bibles, and I hope that you did, then uh, turn there with me. Or if you've got an electronic device, Matthew chapter 28. Uh, in just a minute, we're going to look at a really familiar passage, the Great Commission passage, but one that I hope speaks to us with uh, maybe a fresh word or abundant clarity today. Uh, before we dive in, I should say just by way of introduction that my name is Brian Alderman. I think I know most of you uh, that are in the room anyway, and for those that are joining us online, thank you for being here and thanks for celebrating with us. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and like I said, I, I get the privilege to bring God's word to us this morning. A quick update for you. So Pastor Tim is uh, doing well, continuing to improve day by day, and we are thankful for that. Uh, God has been faithful. Y'all continue in prayer for him and for Dawn as they, and the family as they walk through uh, this road that they are walking together. And continue to pray not only for Pastor Tim and not only for your pastoral staff as sickness kind of surrounds and, you know, it's just everywhere around us, I feel like. Uh, but also just be in prayer for our community that God will allow us to continue to operate. Uh, pray for our schools, pray for our teachers, pray for our government, all these kinds of things that we'd be able to, to continue to operate and function even as uh, sickness abounds. It's been a bit of a year, hasn't it? It's been a crazy, crazy year. So now for the last time on a Sunday, we gather as the family of God to look into his word. Uh, let's dive in. If you've got your Bibles open, Matthew 28, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 28, I'm sorry, verse 16. And if you are able to stand here in the worship center or if you're joining us online, then let's stand and honor the reading of God's word. I will read aloud uh, as you follow along. So Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. But Jesus came near to them and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for the time that you have granted us this morning already in worship. Thank you, Lord, that we were able to sing about how great you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The greatness of our God, the wonder of our God working to save broken and lost sinners like us. Lord, we thank you for your presence, which is in this place, in this room. We felt it. We acknowledge that you're here with us, and so now we ask that through your word you would speak. We ask that you would convict us, that you would move our hearts to be obedient to your word. And Lord, we ask that we would go out from here and live out the truth that you teach us. God, move me out of the way, and you speak 
what needs to be spoken this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. So the title of today's message, again, finishing up that series, No Christmas Without, is No Christmas Without, The Fullness of God Fully for Us. Right? We talked about how Christmas is a work of our God three in one. It's the work of the Father. We studied John 3.16 in that first week. It is the work of the Son. We studied Philippians chapter 2 in that week. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we studied uh, from Luke 1 last week with Pastor Kyle. And so today we kind of look at all together the fullness of God working fully on our behalf. And so if you can kind of run this through in your mind while we're planning the series and looking at it, right? Uh, last week I was sitting with, um, with my friend Ryan while we were listening to the message. And the host at the end of the service said, we're going to continue in our Trinity series next week. And he looked at me and he went, you know, one, two, three, and then what, four? So uh, for clarification in, in the Bible, right, uh, one plus one plus one does equal three. Uh, but in Trinitarian math, it also sort of equals one. And so we, as your pastoral staff, decided that four would be the right number of sermons with which to address this topic, and that's what's brought us to where we are today. Well, we dive right into, like I said, a really familiar passage, but one that I think expresses the, the profound nature of who our God is really beautifully and really simply and really concisely. All just in one phrase, it announces the work of our triune God. And so the first point, if you have sermon notes this morning and you're hanging with me on those, some of yours may be blank, some of them may not have a blank until the back page, but just roll with me, okay, whatever you've got to work with this morning. The first point that we want to address is that we as the church have one mission, and that is the Great Commission. We proclaim salvation in God's name. Salvation in God's name. Jesus, having been crucified and buried and then on the third day raised to new life, has at this time appeared convincingly over and over again to his disciples, right? Uh, he appeared to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. He's walked into the room when all of the doors were locked shut. He just kind of passed through the walls, right? He approached uh, doubting Thomas, and he told Thomas, you can put your fingers into the wounds on my hands and my feet. You can stick your hand into my side where the spear of the Roman soldier was thrust. It's really me. I really was dead, and I really am back to life. And he's appeared at different times to over 500 of the brothers, the scriptures are going to tell us, in order to convince them beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was indeed dead and is indeed alive again. Now when he comes to the disciples, they worship him, but some of them doubt. And you and I would have done the exact same thing. How can this be that I'm looking at the resurrected Jesus? And so Jesus draws near to them and then he speaks the words of our passage. And the first words of it are these, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. As we studied during the week that we looked at the Son in Philippians chapter 2, uh, this is the way that Paul puts it. He says, Jesus, because he submitted himself uh, and emptied himself, and um, even though he was in the very form of God, he didn't count that as something that he needed to hold on to for his own advantage. He emptied himself and came as a servant. He took on the form of, of, of a bondservant, a slave really. 
And when he had come as a man in human form, he humbled himself even further to death. Not just any kind of death, but death on a cross. Now for that reason, because Jesus humbled himself so far, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But if you were to take your Bible and back up into the Old Testament and look through the prophet Isaiah, in particular uh, chapters like you know, 40 through 55 or so, then you would see a repeated refrain over and over again, the words coming from, from God as, as he um, moves the prophet Isaiah to speak and write these words. You would hear him say over and over again, I am the Lord and there is no other. I will not share my glory with anyone else. He says that, at my name, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And so when we come to this passage in Philippians 2, there's a profound mystery on our hands. How can it be that Paul can say Jesus has all authority and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow? But we know that this is a faithful interpretation based on what Jesus himself said. All authority has been given to me. And it was given to him by the Father, who does not share his glory with anyone else. There's only one way that this checks out, only one way that it works, and that is if Jesus and God the Father are in some way one and the same God, together with the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we worship one God. Three persons, one God. It's tricky, and we're going to dive a little bit deeper into it this morning. But I have to say that at the bat, when Jesus claims all authority to himself, that is a huge deal. And we should worship Jesus. We should fall down at his feet and see him as the resurrected and glorified Lord. He was really dead, and he was really laid in the grave, and he really was raised to life. We should worship him. We should also obey him. And the next part of uh, this passage that we read, Jesus gives this great commission, you know, go into all the world and make disciples, right? And I want to say this, his call to mission, brothers and sisters, is not optional. There is no if or but or maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. And you don't see the disciples walk away from his command and say, well, I tell you what, um, that was a pretty good word that Jesus gave us there, uh, but I think what we need to do in this moment is really study uh, what he said. So did anybody write it down? Let's, let's circle up and let's have a Bible study right now and, and make sure that we understand the Greek words that Jesus used right then so that we know exactly what he's asking us to do when he said make disciples. Don't get me wrong. It's not a bad thing to study. I want us to know what this word says. But Jesus' call to make disciples is not optional. The disciples don't need to gather up and have a prayer meeting about it. They need to be obedient to him. And we need to do the same. We should study, but not to the exclusion of doing what we have been asked and called to do. In just a few moments, Jesus is actually going to ascend uh, back to the right hand of the Father. As crazy as this may seem, and I know that you know a lot of y'all are church folks, and so it doesn't seem that crazy. We've been around it all of our lives. But imagine standing on the mountaintop with Jesus, and after he finishes saying these words, he floats and lifts up into the sky. And all the disciples are standing around watching him until the angels say, hey, fellas, it's, it's time to 
It's time to go. He, he's not here anymore. He's going to come back one day in the same way that you saw him go away. But for now, he's not coming back. And so it's time to go and get about the business that he called you to. But if you and I were standing there, then I think the point that we would take would be well made. Jesus is not the kind of person that you call into question his wisdom or his authority or his word. You know, you can question your doctors if you want to. You can question your coach and question your nutritionist and you can question your teachers. And by all means, listen, you should call before the court the people who pastor you and the people who preach to you. And make sure that what we're saying lines up with this book. You should call before the court your, your presidents and your politicians and your governors. But when Jesus speaks, you should say, yes, Lord, and you should follow through in obedience. Study. But don't study to the exclusion of doing what he has commanded you to do. Now, church, this is our mission. It's not optional. But I want to say this. Implied within the command of Jesus here is that we would do both deep discipleship and wide discipleship. Jesus says you should teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. That's going to require a lot of Bible study. And it's going to require a lot of accountability, right? Brothers and sisters sharpening each other, working together. Hey, Jesus commanded us to do this. We need to, we need to learn and we need to walk in his ways. We need to do what he has commanded us to do. So as a church, we need to study the word. And we need to know what it says. And we need to observe what it says. But God help us if all of our programs and all of our worship services and all of our accountability groups and life groups and whatever else does not actually go about the business of making disciples. We should constantly be evaluating these things. Looking at programs to say, hey, does, is, that, is that still effectively making disciples? And if it's not, then no matter how much we love it, it's time to say goodbye. Because as a church, we've got one mission, the Great Commission, make disciples. And that implies deep discipleship. But it also implies wide discipleship. We do well as a church to remind ourselves that the, you know, the operating verb in this passage is not go. Like most of our Bible translations put it go right there at the beginning. The operating verb is make disciples. However, it will be very hard for us to make disciples of all the nations if we never get off of our rear ends and go about the work. Brothers and sisters, the church is a wonderful place to be. The walls that surround us are really helpful when it comes time to worship. But when it comes time to live out the command of God to go and make disciples of all the nations, shame on us, brothers and sisters, if we never get outside and make disciples of all the nations. We have work to do. Every one of you that's in this room has work to do. You can contribute to this mission of making disciples. You can do it by praying that across the world God would raise up a, a, a group, a an army of laborers who would be willing to go into the world and make disciples. You can pray to that end. You can also give to that end. Liberty, you've done just that when you've given to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And you do just that when you give to the regular offering here at Liberty Baptist. And then we take that money and we support Great Commission efforts all across our world. 
We support Great Commission efforts all across the United States of America and North America and South America and everywhere else to the very ends of the earth. And you can give to that. But there may even be some of you in this room who are called to go. Who are called to go and take the words of Jesus to the nations. Teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded. We can all contribute to this and we all need to. The mission is not optional. We must always remember that this is kind of a, it's a weighty command, right? It sits on the church and, and we should feel that. We should rest underneath the weight of this command. But we can also know that Jesus promises his presence with us. At the very end, he says, remember this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. His presence is present. Some of us got some presents yesterday, right? But let me tell you this, the greatest present that anyone can ever receive is the presence of Jesus Christ to walk with you through all of life. And so he promises that. His presence goes with us across time and space. Remember, brother or sister, he is with you. As a child of God, the Lord walks with you wherever you go. And he walks with you in a special way as you are obedient to his command. It doesn't stop, right? His security does not stop at the deadbolts of our front doors. It doesn't end at the, at the, end, at the borders of our you know, undeniably powerful nation. It doesn't even stop, for those of you who live here in Chelsea, Alabama, in the security that we have of a tight-knit community with even a Facebook page dedicated to the watching over of Chelsea. His presence goes with you everywhere, across time and space, from generation to generation, from nation to nation. If you are a child of God, Jesus walks with you wherever you go. And it's a precious and sweet promise that we need to hold on to. But this is where our message is going to take a turn and perhaps maybe even an unexpected one at that. Because it's not just the presence of the Son that goes with you as a believer. Remember, this is no Christmas without, not just the Father, not just the Son, not just the Spirit, but the fullness of God fully for you. See, wherever you go in this life, as you pray, as you give, and as you go to accomplish the Great Commission... It's not just the Son of God who walks with you. The Father who is sovereign over all things, that, mean he, that means he works all things together, he watches over you. The same one who clothes the lilies of the field and who knows the number of hairs that are on your head, he walks with you. He knows you. He sees you. And it also means that the Holy Spirit is given to you, not just to walk with you, but actually to live within you as your counselor while you go through your journey on earth. So it's not just the Son. It's not just the Father. It's not just the Spirit. It is the fullness of God walking with us. And this leads us to the second main point on your notes. We're going to dive in and look a little bit closer at who this God says He is throughout Scripture. So number two is that all of God's fullness is who He is. Now this may sound like the simplest point that was ever preached at Liberty Baptist Church. And that's intentional. Because at its core, the Trinity, the mystery of our God, who is three in one, is at the same time, the most simplest and the most complicated and complex of all the doctrines that we have to study the Christian faith. 
it is completely and totally central to who we are as Christians. There is no one else in the world who claims to believe in one God who is three persons. It's central. Yet it's also incomprehensible. We cannot wrap our minds around the God who is three in one. And let me tell you something that morning, uh, something this morning, brothers and sisters, that is a really, really good thing. A God who is small enough for us to understand is a God who is too small to be worshipped. Oftentimes when we try to fit God into the box of our brain, what's actually happening is we're trying to make God look like us. Because the natural instinct of fallen humanity is to worship ourselves. I do what I want. I think what I want. I go after what I want and I'm watching out for me. But into that selfish, sinful environment within us, God speaks a word that he is bigger than all of our thoughts could ever comprehend. My ways are higher than your ways, he says. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And all throughout the scriptures, God was preparing us to accept this reality with humility. I'm going to take you back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Some of you are maybe familiar with the story, uh, right? There's a man named Moses, and Moses is at a burning bush, and he's speaking uh, to the Lord's presence, speaking to him from the bush, and the, the Lord is telling him that he's going to send Moses on a mission to rescue the Israelite people out of Egypt. You can read about this story in Exodus. And Moses says, God, if you send me back, who should I tell the people sent me? What name are you going to give to me so that I can go back and I can tell them, this God told me to come and deliver you from the Egyptians. And the words that God speaks back to Moses in that moment are these. He says, Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh, which means I am who I am. Now again, those of us that are familiar with the Bible, it doesn't really strike us. It's pretty normal, right? Yeah, that, of course that's what God said. I've heard it since I was three years old in the preschool. But understand what the Lord is doing when he gives that response. I have a friend who hates the expression, it is what it is, right? Because it is what it is means you can't do anything about it. Most of the time we actually can do something about it. But in the case of God revealing himself to us, you can't do anything about it. And that's exactly what he's saying in this passage. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And Moses, there's not a darn thing that you can do to change that. Neither you, nor Abraham, nor the Israelites, nor the story of salvation, nor the power of Rome, nor the United States of America, nor the coronavirus, nor anything else can ever change the fact that this is who God is. Come to terms with it. Don't try to squeeze God into your box. Worship him as bigger than comprehension. Even when you can't wrap your mind around him, around him, know that he is who he says he is. Now he does give Moses a name. He says his name is Yahweh. It's the covenant name that he's given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And to that he adds the words, this is my name forever. From generation to generation, this is how you're going to know me. And again, there's a truth here that's, that's right there for us to grasp, and it is a wonderful, wonderful thing that we can bank on. 
If this is who God is from generation to generation, then not only is there you know, absolutely nothing that we can do to change that fact, there's also nothing that anyone can do to change that fact. God is going to stay exactly the same from generation to generation. In James, the, the author is going to tell us that there's no shifting like the shadows in God. Right, The sun comes up and moves around and the shadows move from place to place. But not so with God. He is who he is from eternity past all the way to eternity future. And that means that he has existed three persons, one being. God three in one, the Trinity, from, time, uh, from before time even began. It's complicated, but we need, to, we need to hang on to it this morning. We cannot deny as Christians that there is the Father, there is the Son, and there is the Spirit. These are three persons. Even though we read in the Old Testament and it seems like, okay, maybe there is you know, one God here. When Jesus comes around at Christmas, we cannot deny that at times Jesus does things that only God can and should do. And we also can't deny that even though we may not have seen the Holy Spirit working back in the history of salvation, now we cannot deny that he's working at Christmas time. We cannot deny that the Holy Spirit and that the Son receive worship from people, which is a gigantic no if there really is only one person, the Father. But there is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's a trinity. They are distinct, and we can see them working throughout salvation history. Now, I want to be clear. They're not just manifestations of the one God, right? Like sometimes, you know, he appears as the Father, and then other times he appears as the Son, and other times he appears as the Holy Spirit. That's not how this works. It's not like your favorite actor that, you know, sometimes plays Iron Man and at other times plays Sherlock Holmes. They're not just manifestations. God is three in one, always, all the time, from eternity past. And he will be that way until eternity future. Nor are the three persons just modes of being. Like, you know, through the Old Testament there was the Father, right? And then, and then when the New Testament came, there was the Son, Jesus, while he was walking on the earth. And then when Jesus ascended, then the Spirit came. And so now God is the Spirit. He's in this mode, and then he's in this mode, and now he's in this mode. That's not how this works. He is one God, three persons, always and forever. It's challenging to understand and to wrap our brains around, but again, that's a good thing. Because he's worthy of our worship, even when he's beyond our comprehension. We also need to be really careful, though, that we don't get lost in giving divinity to all three and separating them from one another to the degree that we worship three gods. We don't. As Christians, we believe that there is one God. You remember that this is kind of the central uh, tenet of, you know, the, the Jewish faith, right? All the way, if you rewind your Bible back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you'll read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. We only worship one divine being, one substance. He's united together. He's undivided. We cannot say that God is divided into three persons. We can say that he is distinct as three persons. And language fails us at this point, but you know, I think that maybe God has given us a, a little bit of an illustration, right? An analogy. Uh, and, and all of these analogies break down over time, so don't, you know, don't press all of them because they will fall apart. 
But in marriage, he tells us that as a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh. It's a mystery. We can't really understand how it works, and yet we know that it, that it should work that way. Now, in our society where marriage is often devalued and it's abandoned as easily as it's entered into, uh, that analogy becomes especially dangerous to use. But, but remember that, right? God gives us a picture. It's kind of like two people becoming one flesh. God exists three persons, one being. Now let me say this. Again, this is all really complicated and, and, and more you know, ink has been spilled. Books have been written. Articles have been authored about this subject than probably most of the other subjects in history. And I'll be honest with you that even my master's educated but simple English-speaking educated mind, a lot of this stuff just goes right over my head. But not all of it does. And I can promise you, brothers and sisters, that there are resources out there that would not go over your head either. And I want to challenge you this morning because here's what we all know is true. A growing, intimate relationship requires growing understanding. Husbands and wives, none of you in the room, I hope, said I do on your wedding day, and with that, never made another effort to learn anything else about your spouse. Like the knowledge, the growing knowledge does not stop on the day the relationship is entered into. Ah, good enough. Made it here, so may as well quit while I'm ahead, right? And then you just live out the rest of your days never learning anything else about each other. No. We encourage each other, you know, spouses, even after your wedding day, perhaps all the more after your wedding day, keep on dating each other, keep on getting to know each other, keep on learning more about each other. For those of us that have, you know, children in the room, wisdom encourages us, hey, every once in a while, you know, take the child out one-on-one, -on -one. spend some time with them, get to know them, learn their heart, because a growing intimate relationship requires growing understanding. How much more then, how much more with our God, who's three in one, one in three, should we invest time and resource into learning more and more who he is, what he's like, and how we can better understand him? We cannot, brothers and sisters, be the kinds of Christians who pray a fire insurance kind of prayer, Lord Jesus, save me from my sins and be my Lord, and then never try to grow in our walk with him. The walk of discipleship requires that we do what we can to learn more about him. And so it's just a preview of that today. Again, there are resources that you can turn to, and I would encourage you, if you need some of those resources and you don't know where to start, you know, come and talk to us. Uh, you can, surely, you can search the internet and search YouTube and whatever else, but be careful, right? Vet the sources that you receive information from, but certainly come and, and, and talk to us. Your staff would love to help you walk to, to grow and know more about the God who you serve and, and love. And besides that fact, I mean, we have, you know, practically a walking theolog theological librarian in um, Kyle Valere at our church. And so if you need resources, then just go see the man, and he will help you uh, as you journey on in that. But, but, but I mean that with all seriousness. 
If you're looking for help in that journey, then, then ask somebody for help. Walk with each other, and let's go deeper with the God who we serve and know. But this morning, what I want to do is, pretty quickly, I want to run us through the story of Scripture and the story of redemption, and I want us to see our God three in one working from the very beginning. And so if you have your sermon notes, I'm going to move through these pretty quick. But main point number three is that all of God's fullness works in what he does. All of God's fullness works in what he does. We see this for the first time at creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And so when we look at that in the original language, the word for God there, some of you have probably heard this, is Elohim, which is actually plural, right? Uh, and then the verb right after it, he created, is singular. So if you were to you know, just translate it as it is, it would sound something like this. In the beginning, God's, he created the heavens and the earth. Now there's not enough there for us to completely and totally spell out the, you know, the nature of the Trinity, but there is enough to kind of raise an eyebrow and say, I wonder why God wrote it that way. And, and throughout scriptures we're informed as to why he did, right? So later on he says the spirit of God, there he is, was hovering over the waters. And then he says, then God said, God spoke, God opened his mouth and said, let there be light. And boom, there was light. Now, in John, the gospel, John's going to tell us in the first three verses that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's going to go on to tell us that without the Word, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, Jesus, the Word, the Logos, is the one who God used as the agent of creation. So God's in the beginning creating the heavens and the earth. His Spirit is hovering over the waters, and when He speaks His Word, the Son moves to create. He's there, right there at the beginning in creation. He's also there in the covenant. The covenant, this is the story of salvation as it works throughout the Old Testament. He's there with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 as he calls to this man named Abraham and says, go from your father's house and all your relatives and leave them all behind to the land that I'm going to show you. And then trust me, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. And all of the nations are going to be blessed through you. That's a prophecy of Jesus one day who would come from Abraham's family and bless the nations by bringing salvation. In Genesis chapter 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves. That sounds kind of familiar, right? John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son Right, So you see that God is preparing the way for us to understand his three-in-oneness, even at the beginning of Scripture, even in the covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit moves to inspire the prophets. He inspires the prophet Jeremiah to tell of a time when uh, there would be a new covenant. And God would write the law on the hearts of his people by the Holy Spirit living inside of them. The New Testament confirms that that's exactly what has happened with you and I on the day that we believed in Christ. Right? The, prophet, uh, the Holy Spirit carries along the prophet Isaiah to, to tell of one who would be born, a, a baby who would come from a young woman um, who one day would be called Mighty God. Wonderful counselor. He says that one day the government would even be on this baby's shoulders. It's a prophecy made by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah of the Son of God incarnate as Israel's Messiah. So God, three in one, working at creation, working in the covenant. 
But then as we've studied the past couple weeks, God also worked at Christmas, three in one, right? John 3, 16, we read, talked about how God, the Father, representative of the Father, loved the world that he sent his only son so that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the son from Philippians chapter 2 and how he did not hang on to his divinity as something to be used for his own advantage, but submitted it in his humanity to the father and came in the likeness of a servant. He died a sinner's death so that we could be forgiven of our sins. The son worked at Christmas. And then last week, we studied the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1, verses 35 through 37 especially. We learned that it was the Spirit who worked to conceive the Son of God in the Virgin Mary's womb. It all sounds crazy, but again, we're seeing God three in one work through the story of the Scriptures. We know that God, all three, works together in the church. He works together in the church. Matthew 28, our passage that we read today, right? You're to baptize them into what name? Not just the name of the Son, but the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells them, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit falls on you. And then by his power, you will be my witnesses. By the Holy Spirit's power, you're going to witness to Jesus uh, to the, you know, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. At the end of Mark, it's written what history confirms with us. The disciples did just that. They went and they preached in all the world. And the Lord worked with them, confirming their word by signs and wonders along the way. All of God works in the church. He still works in this church today, by the way, and we do well to remember that. But it's not over yet because one day the fullness of God will work in the new creation. All of us who've been born again, those of us who are children of God, are already experiencing and walking in this reality. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone, any man, any woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, it's passed away, and the new has come. You are a walking preview of what God is going to do to all of creation. He's redeeming it. He's bringing it back to life. He is reclaiming the purpose for which he created it. And one day he's going to do it finally. Revelation chapter 21. If you've not read it, you really should. It's beautiful. But just a couple of verses. God promises that in this new creation, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. This is the promise of our God, three in one, working to bring about new creation. So from the beginning until the very end, it is the fullness of God, fully for us, working to bring salvation, working to bring redemption, working to make his creation what it was supposed to be at the beginning. Now, if I only had one shot, if I only had one chance to motivate you to study and learn and dive deep to figure out who this God is, three in one, whether you're a believer today or an unbeliever. If I only had one chance, here is what I would tell you. It's point number four on your sermon notes. All of God's fullness came on mission for you. All of God's fullness came on mission for you. Think about it this way. Before the Great Commission was ever your mission, it was the mission 
of our God three in one. From Abraham all the way down to King David. From the prophet Isaiah to Israel's leader, Nehemiah. From the apostle Peter to the once persecuting, now converted and preaching apostle Paul. God himself was working to go and make disciples of all the nations. Along the way, baptizing them in the name, his name, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded in his word. Before the Great Commission was ever your mission, it was his mission. And one day, that mission brought somebody into your life who shared that truth with you. Because all of God's fullness came on mission for you. The beautiful truth is this, that God is fully for his children. The Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans said this better than any of us I think ever could, probably certainly better than I could. And I'm going to read it for you at length. This is from Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, grant us everything? And who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more than that, he has been raised. And he's also at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... No, as it is written, because of you, Lord, because of you, we are being put to death all the day long and we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The fullness of God fully for you and for me. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like for you to walk with your God who is three in one and to discover him more deeply. But I can tell you what it looked like for me, at least just one brief example. Many of you know this story, but some of you don't, and I'll share it with you. The year of 2021, which you know, we all prayed for and waited for and longed for because it had to be better than the year of 2020, for a lot of us, it was anything but it. Now, for me, it certainly was, but really the only thing I think that felt closer to our family this year than the Lord himself, maybe, was, was, was death and sickness. I feel like we were sick all the time. And it felt like constantly there was somebody who was in the throes of, of death, and we were praying that God would spare their life. It was certainly the case back in April when our sweet daughter, Louie, was born, and we spent seven days in the hospital, first fighting for her life, and then fighting for her mom's life, and then once again fighting, if not for Louie's life, at least for her healthiness and for our ability to, you know, to walk away, to go home from, from the hospital. And I remember during those days what it was like 
and learned all over again the beauty and the power of having a deep relationship with my God who is three in one. Many of you have walked the same kind of road, and so this will not be a strange story to you. You've felt this. But in those hospital hallways and corridors, what a comfort it was for me to know that the Father was watching over me. The Father who knows the hairs that are on my head and Kaylee's head and Louie's head and Eli's head. And he is sovereign over all things. There is nothing that comes my way or your way before it goes through the hands of your Father in heaven who watches over you. It should comfort you. But the Son, Jesus, was was also with me in those moments, was with us in those moments, providing that promised presence, his protection, which gave us a peace that passes all understanding. Lord, this is not going the way that I wanted it to. But even if it doesn't, I can trust you. It's supernatural. And the only way that that kind of reaction happens is because Jesus is walking with us, giving us that peace that allows us to say such a thing. And more than that, the Holy Spirit, who God placed inside of me when I became a believer, was working with me in that moment to provide that peace and to flesh it out so that what rose to the surface when a doctor came and shared bad news or, or, or when somebody came and, you know, it wasn't anger, it wasn't impatience, it wasn't just exasperation and, and tiredness beyond what I could bear. But instead, because of the Holy Spirit working in our midst, it was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's actually what came to the surface as I was able to be and as we were able to be witnesses to the doctors and the nurses that spared the lives of my family members. I can't tell you what it'll look like for you to walk with your God who is three in one, but I can tell you what it looked like for me. It was comfort when I needed it, peace when I was desperate for it, and power when I didn't have any in myself. I close today with the words from our church's confession, the Baptist faith and message from the year 2000. Um, You get a lot of, you know, brilliant Bible scholars who love the Lord Jesus in a room together and they put together a statement on the Trinity. And I can promise you that, you know, this 28-year-old preacher is not going to get up to, you know, to the level that that they would. So, So hear the words of what we as a church confess when we talk about our God. There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, the redeemer, the preserver, and the ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of nature, essence, or being. My question to you is, do you know our God who is three in one today? If you do, won't you get to know him deeper? Won't you invest time and resource to know him deeper? And if you don't, If you don't yet know him, then won't you come to know him today? Won't you recognize that the fullness of our God is fully for you? And that to discover more about him is the great adventure. It is the greatest journey that you could ever take up in this life. And to know him and to know his benefits is the greatest treasure. 
that could ever be discovered. On your sermon notes, there's some points of application, some live it out points for you to look at and consider, and I would urge you to do just that. Maybe grab one or two from your life group and work through them together. Encourage one another, brothers and sisters, to know this God who is fully for us. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a time of response. And in that moment, it's your time, your time to respond to what God has spoken to you. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have provided for us. That it's the day that you've made, and we will rejoice and we'll be glad in it. Lord, I pray that, that in this moment you would help us to respond to the truth of your word. Lord, you know as well as I do that I'm a broken and sinful man and, and that my words are so far from perfect. So today, Lord, let anything that I've said that's not been what you wanted your people to hear, let it go in one ear and out the other. But let your word penetrate in our hearts and our spirits. Lord, let it convict us in this time to get to know you better and to study you and to learn more about you. And let it move us, Lord, to worship you. God, I pray that you would be here in our midst as we respond to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.